Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Categorically Romance podcast. I am Bree, and joining me today all the way across the world in Abu Dhabi is the wonderful Jade Sola James. Jade Sola, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much, Bree. I'm excited to be here. Tell me how, okay, so you've moved. So tell me all the things, 22, 2022, how has it been for you? How is the new location? Tell me all the things. It has been absolutely mad. So I relocated in December to Abu Dhabi for work. I work in academia and I had a baby in March. So I immediately like relocated for the new job. Went and I was on bed rest for a while. It was it was madness. So it just feels now that things are starting to settle down. Like my daughter, she's um, she's at that golden baby age where they're not quite old enough to move by themselves, but they're old enough to like hold their heads up and smile at you, and you know you can sleep at night without checking to see if they're breathing every three seconds. You know so. It's it's been it's been a wild wild year. It's just starting to feel like it's settling down to be honest. <laughs> but I'm glad I mean, to be here. Talk about Wonder Woman. You are having babies, moving across the world for work in academia. Like <laughs> bless you, okay? <laughs> I have a lot of support though. So I have a wonderful partner and my other two kids have really taken it like troopers. I've been so impressed with the grace and the just the flexibility in which they've yeah. just moved through such a wild time. So I'm grateful to have them around me as well. Okay, so how does moving for work to Abu Dhabi happen? <laughs> well, I, I'm an academic librarian. Um and I actually, I think I've mentioned this on, on this podcast before. I lived and worked in Qatar for some time. And mm-hmm. my husband, he spent most of his adult working life in the Middle East. And he loves it. He absolutely loves it. So I think there was it was always in the back of our minds that we would come back to the region if an opportunity presented itself, whether for him or for me. So this time... It was an opportunity that presented itself for me in one of the universities over here. And we just grabbed it and packed our bags and came. I think once you start having kids as well, there's this very short window, uh, if you have them close together, where they're young enough that they're kind of portable. But once they start grade school in earnest, you know, you want to put roots down somewhere and not go anywhere for a while and give them some stability unless they're military kids, of course. Um, shout out to the military. Call me a super mom. They're super moms. But um, <laughs> so that was just a kind of a decision that we made before our kids got a little older. And so far, so good. Like, thank goodness. We've been very happy here for the past few months and looking forward to see what the future will bring. So what are you loving about it there? I mean, I know y'all are already Middle East fans. I love that. I've only been to, um, I think I told you last time, I went to Doha. Yes. And I was only in Doha for like a week. But I love the re- city of Riyadh in Saudi Arabia is just hands down, I think, one of the most beautiful places ever. But what are you loving? Are you loving, have you tried some some cool food places? <laughs> like what's the book scene look like over there? Like what are you loving about it? 
Oh, well, so I haven't really been able to go out until recently okay. <laughs> because of the newborn. But um, the food scene is definitely what it's about. Oh, I went to this amazing Lebanese place a couple weekends ago with my husband and we're both sitting there. And it was funny because both of them thought, both of us, both of them, Lord, that shows you how little sleep I'm getting. Both of us <laughs> thought we heard a baby crying at some point during the meal. And so we you thought it was yours. Cries. Exactly. But, you know, just being able to go out and experience some of these things that we did as non-parents with our kids, I think is really fun too, seeing it through their eyes. And also, I think community is much more important to me now, too, that I'm older and that I'm more settled. And it's not just me, you know, uh, connecting with other moms and with other families and with other writers as well. There's actually a, a very thriving writing and art scene. I'm a part of a local group that meets weekly to write together um, they have two sessions, one virtually, which is the one I usually go to, and another at a local restaurant. And both are just really good ways to connect with the community and just see the diversity of voices in writing in this region. You know, you have British writers, you have writers that are native to the UAE, you have writers from East Asia, you have writers from Africa. So I've met a lot of different artists representing so many different parts of the world. And it's such a privilege to be able to work with them and to be able to see them and hear their stories. I just love this for you. I <laughs> have been thinking a lot, I guess, over the past couple of years. And I've, you know, my husband and I have been talking about it. I'm like, I just feel like as Americans, sometimes we feel like we have everything here and there's no need to leave here. Yeah. But these past few years, it's just been just hearing like the different authors that are like, yeah, we just packed up and moved to Australia yes. or you know, like following people on YouTube that are like, yeah, you know, I'm an expat now or something. I'm like, I don't want to like have that mentality of like, I don't want to go see other things and try to live in other places just because like we can just move to another state or something <laughs> like that just sounds so boring at this point. So I just, yeah, we've been talking about like, where would we go? We're both definitely open to it. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see where this, this journey leads us. But yeah, I'm like, I'm just ready. Like let's, <laughs> even if it go and we don't like, you know, we only spend a couple of years and we come exactly. back at least to do it. Exactly. You know? you know, it's not it's not a lifelong commitment. If it's not for you, you can always you can always come back. And if you come to the Gulf region, I will be here to welcome you <laughs> with open arms. But you no know, travel is so broadening and it's such a privilege to be able to experience different places and different cultures and to be able to work and live uh, overseas. You know, it's not something that everyone else gets to do and it's not uh, and not everyone here who is an expat is in an ideal situation. So I'm very grateful that this is my life and I'm able to live it and write at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Um, you are living the dream, okay? I, I'm just saying it for you. You're living the dream. And I hope you enjoy every moment of it. Thank you, Bree. That means a lot. So we're here to talk something you've been studying and researching. And I want you to talk all about it. But just a little bit of a background here, listeners. So you know, Aaron and I, we do have this Blaze project kind of focusing on temptation, Blaze and Dare. 
But even more bigger picture than that, just how marketing works in category. With that project specifically, we're trying to focus on the sex sells you know, lines for category that unfortunately are no longer here. And our, it immediately came to me. I was like, Jade Sola told us when we talked to her last time that she's been researching romance and women's fiction and how it's marketed. And it was like, if she's willing to talk to us, we have to have her come on and educate us. So for anybody that has not listened to the previous episode, Yuan, will you kind of give us a background on all of your academic, your, your work that pertains to this? Absolutely. So I am a librarian by, I was going to say by trade, but that's not really the word, but by occupation, I'm a librarian. And when I was doing my master's, I focused on book publishing, specifically women's fiction. And if you even want to get more into a subcategory, romance fiction. And mine was concentrated on women's fiction during the 19th century in the United States. And It's a very understudied area uh, for various reasons that I won't get into because that's a whole nother podcast. (laughs) So you'll have to come back to get into the reasons, okay? (laughs) Hear me rant possibly for two hours, but again, besides the point. Um, (laughs) So I developed an interest in the way the market for romantic fiction was created specifically in the United States. And it's interesting because the United States parallels uh, the United Kingdom as well. You know, when things were happening over here, the same thing was happening in Great Britain. And a lot of the same stories and the same authors were repackaged and republished and reprinted and even sometimes pirated on both sides. But what's interest- what was most interesting to me was how the market was created and how these books were given the appeal and the audience and just became a, a genre that grew and that turned into something else that birthed Harlequin, which of course, which is which uh, produced Blaze and is sort of the ultimate, you know, when you say Harlequin, you're saying romance when it comes to romance writing. So just that history and where it started, you know, a lot of these romances started in periodicals and the marketing and publication of these um, cheap novels and magazines and story papers. I think their, their success really lies in their distribution these stories are on newsstands all over the country and they flourished and they were distributed from New England to the Great Lakes and in big cities like San Francisco and New Orleans and even parts of Canada. They were sold in drugstores. They were sold in the waiting rooms of train stations. Pushcart vendors and newsboys would be hawking these books and the variety that they were able to satisfy to their customers was absolutely dizzying. You know, they could read all kinds of different types of romance. If they wanted to read about shakes, they could. If they wanted to read about factory girls, that was a whole subgenre. If they wanted to read about housemaids who fell in love with rich and prosperous millionaires, you know, in those days, they could. If they um, wanted to read about... Uh, women who were being pursued across some exotic continent by 
a man that was just determined to have them in every way, shape or form yeah. they could. And you look at Harlequin, you know, in, in modern times, and they really kept that that model. You know, there's something for every reader. There's something for every taste. So I was really excited in hearing about the Blaze Project, because even though the books that I've been researching are obviously not as sexually charged as Blaze was, simply because of uh, culture and, and um, you know, what quote-unquote, proper women could read. It, it follows a lot of those same, those same um, patterns and characteristics, and it's all about fulfilling a need. Okay. So take us back. Like, where were you academically wise when you were like, did you come into the program? Like, when you entered the master's program, yes. were you already aware of, like, this is what I want to research, or was it you're just like going through the archives and you come across something and you're like, huh, I have questions about this. Like, how did this specifically come about for you? I had an advisor and he was a senior lecturer in the program. His name is Fred Nesta. And I say his name because he's a Victorianist and he is one of the leading voices on the history of women's fiction and, um, you know, this genre. But in, in in Great Britain. And he was producing some work that I read and I just found it fascinating just looking at the history of women because, you know, I read romance novels and I knew about different lines and different subgenres, but just looking at it from a marketing perspective and from the perspective of booksellers in those days and from ghostwriters, you know, in those times, it was just fascinating to me. And normally when you're in a library program, you're supposed to be, um, you know, looking at aspects of library science and information Mm -hmm. studies. But instead, I chose to focus on, you know, something historical, which is the history of the book. And um, that's sort of what what drew me what drew me into that. And it's, it's a little bit of a stretch, but. When you think about marketing and the way information spreads and the way information is passed from person to person and the different ways in which publishers share uh, this information and the different marketing techniques that they use, it's all part of the science of information and how it gets around the world and how it gets to the end user. So that was the justification I used for writing about book history in a library science program. <laughs> I think it worked out. I think it worked out. Yeah. And then, of course, <laughs> I went on to start a, start a PhD, which I haven't finished. I'm not even halfway through. I don't want to think about that right now. But now, you know, I can fully embrace the topic since, since it's a history, since, a, since it's a history degree. Okay. So you're going to continue to kind of just build upon the work you've already already looked into, already done? Yes. I want to expand on it. There's so many different things I want to touch on. I would love to touch on the history of romance literature in the Black community. And there's a lot of uh, wonderful history there to explore. Um, I would love to do a deep dive into Harlequin and its marketing techniques over the years because yes yeah and come talk to us about it yeah I mean I I, I'm gonna I I have a little bit that I've um that I looked at today that I that I wanted to that I wanted to talk about um and specific to Blaze as well because Harlequin they 
they have it down to a science. Like I take my hat off to them and they've had it down to a science for decades and decades. And it's such a privilege to be able to write for them and be on the author end, but also be able to see what they're doing on the marketing end as well. So why do you think there hasn't really been much like academic focus on the romance genre? So there are a lot of schools of thought as to why. Uh, just generally, um, scholars not taking women's fiction as seriously as they do other genres. You know, of course, there's a very feminist angle there that I think has 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 some truth to it. And also the assumption that romance fiction is formulaic in a way that only someone who does not read them can assume. Yes, they follow similar patterns. Yes, they use tropes over and over and over, but the the uniqueness of the writing in and of itself and the distinct voices of the authors and the lines and the publishers themselves are something that aren't as considered. And, you know, the truth is that in academia, uh, women's fiction just isn't as valued or and it isn't taken as seriously. So um, it's seen as more disposable. It's seen as more just like cheap entertainment that's just there for a moment and then discarded. You know, it's like, okay, they all read the same. You burn through all of them and then they're done. It hasn't really left a significant... Um, a significant mark on literature or any such thing. So I think that's why it gets ignored, ignored a lot in academia and in academic circles. And it's not studied as much, but that is changing. That is changing. You know, if you, if if you do a deep dive, like into the research and, and look there, there are several leading scholars that are talking about women's fiction, specifically romance fiction, how it relates to feminism, how it relates to love, how it relates to sexuality, and how it relates to marketing, you know, which is what we're talking about today. So there are some very interesting studies out there. And if anyone wants like a long, long list that, you know, they may never get to, feel free to reach out to me. I'll share I'll share a reading list. So I guess I wanted to ask you, since this is part of the Blaze Project, why the Blaze Project? Okay, so... I was hurt, okay, when Dare was closed. As and I've been thinking were. about this. We, we everybody was. Silence for Dare, just like. <laughs> <laughs> moment of silence. Okay. <laughs> Hear me out. Hear me out. I live in very conservative South Texas, right? And I can go to the Walmart and I know what lines I'm going to see, right? Yes. Like you t- I, I'm going to see presents. I'm going to see special edition and all of that. A lot of love inspired, a, love, a lot of love inspired suspense. Even recently when my Walmart, I don't know if they're cutting back, mm-hmm. if, the, if the vendor is just cutting back on what he's bringing, I may not see new presents. I may not see new desires, but I'm going to see love inspired. I'm going to see love inspired suspense. I'm going to see love inspired historical. That's fine. I support those lines as well. I just question why the lines where the sex sells mm-hmm. are the ones that are closed you know mm-hmm. and um 
I, I know in certain lines, like the romance line, for instance, it used to be closed door. Now the authors can write that in there if they want. Yeah. And there are lines where if you want to make it's, the sex has always been on the page. But if you want to get a little bit steamier, I, I guess you're encouraged to do so if you want to. And it feels almost as a reader like that's compensation for the fact that the line where the sex really kind of came first yeah. and then we start to focus on the romance yes. is no longer here. Mm-hmm. And so I'm my question is we're really trying to focus on like why can't category in terms of Harlequin yes. um why are we missing the mark with the with the sexier stuff? Is it because we do rely heavily on stores like Walmart and they're probably they would they would never put a dare on the shelf here. Yes. I don't think they would have ever done it. I don't think they would have been on Barnes and Noble shelf either, but I know for sure Walmart, I don't see it happening. And I guess the question is why? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's an interesting question, Brie, because higher heat romance is so popular now, you know, especially yes. with the ebook age, it, it sells like hotcakes. Look at the Amazon list. Look at what people are talking about on Book Talk. Look at what people are talking about on Reddit. So, you know, one would think that they would find, readers would find a way to snatch them up. And I and I think they did. I, I'm not privy to sales numbers or anything like that. But I know so many people who love D.A.R.E., including me, including me. And funny enough, even though I'm a Presents um, writer, uh, when I read, I don't read as much higher steam stuff like i i want it wrapped up in that very esoteric gorgeous fairy taleish language yeah. you know i want that very um how do i put it like very stylistic presentation of 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 high steam whereas dare just got down to it but you know sometimes you, sometimes you just you just needed a dare like i'd sit there like with with my drink and just sip it i'm like ooh that was good but um yeah, it's a it's a really interesting question. I don't have the answer to that. It's fun to speculate. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing what a, what what else this series is going to bring. But I mean, like historically, uh there's there's a there's a scholar called Ann Goris and she talks about Harlequin as sort of the most important romance publisher. They published um pretty much like half the romances in the United States from for for a very long period in 2010 uh 240 books uh, oh sorry 8240 i'm like 240 that sounds really small 8240 books were published under the category of romance and 469 became national and international bestsellers Wow. So the lack of critical attention, I think, doesn't stem from the fact that the book is less important, but there's this real cultural prejudice that says, like I said, that they're all the same. Women's pornography, blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to go down that road because it gets me really hot, and that's not what we're here for today. (laughs) But... This is your show, okay? Whatever you want to share, you you share, so... (laughs) But I mean, that hmm, that very recognizable look, um, I think a lot of critics, critics equate that conventionality to inferiority. 
they call it a lack of originality. They call it, you know, typical and expected and 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 basic. And but it's 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 just not. It's just not. I see it more as publishers and writers catering to reader expectation and catering to what readers love and catering to that escapism and that element of just uh, treating themselves that that readers have. So Blaze, of course, was brought out as a very sensual line. And, you know, the couple is often in some state of undress on the cover. Um, The heroine is usually not older than her early 30s. Uh, The hero, and I say heroine and hero because when the Blaze line was out there, um, we didn't have a lot of the, a, a lot of the, a lot of the queer romance, unfortunately. And now that, thank God, is is coming onto the market. So when I say hero and heroine, that's what I mean. Um, and the hero basically just never hit forty. But to reduce the romance novel to just those elements, you meet you you miss so many nuances and so many subtleties. Like if I could ask you. Uh, Brie, why do you like Blaze? Oh, gosh. They are sexy, Mm -hmm. fun, and they do have like this flirty element to it that I just think, I don't know, like I I came to romance late, so I'm like discovering a lot of them now. And that's just the the feel that I get. And they're not like all, they're not, um, they could be like the person next door, you know? I like that. Yes, exactly, exactly. And I write while I write presents, and I love them. I love Blaze for for the same reasons. Like they were funny. They're funny. Yeah. Like uh, presents can be funny, but in a very different way than Blaze. Blaze just had like a grittier feel to it. Um, I, I'd read a Blaze set in New York City, and as a New Yorker, I would recognize some of the elements there. Like to, for this podcast, I pulled out some of my old Blazes, and one that I read just had this really funny scene um, with a girl who's coming to New York, and she's moving her stuff up to a walk-up apartment. So she drags her first suitcase up like <laughs> three flights of stairs, and she gets to the top. And then she gets in an altercation with her boyfriend over the phone. So she completely forgets her other suitcase. So she comes back down the stairs and she sees NYPD police like in front of her suitcase about to blow it up because it looks like a bomb. You know, it's a bomb threat. (laughs) Suspicious package. She's absolutely (laughs) mortified. So and then, of course, um, the passerby on the street are getting involved and they're like, let her open her bag. Why do you always got to be so, you know, so extra and this and that. So she opens her bag finally. And then, of course, it's full of the most frilly, ridiculous underwear possible. <laughs> so, and the cop is a real D bag. So he's like going through her underwear like piece by piece. And of course, the underwear makes an appearance later in the story when she and the hero meet up. And it's, you know, just very, but like you said, it's just very sexy. It's very flirty. And, um, you know, when I was doing, when I was doing research, there's a scholar on marketing and women's romance, or her name is Pam Dungy, and she specifically talked about the Blaze line. So a lot of what I'm going to say today, like uh, historically, I got from her. And she said that Donna Hayes, who was president 
of Harlequin, um, <laughs> she cited that 22% of American women were, be- were between 21 and 34. So 22% of the women in America were between there. And okay. their readership demanded for more sexy editorial. So, and, and Blaze was also written in and from the same world. If I can just take us back to sort of like the late 90s, early 1000s, to women who were watching Sex in the City and sipping Cosmopolitans. And they just had a very modern, empowering woman approach to sexuality. So there was that element of lust, but women were doing the lusting too, you know? And there was that element of mystery that's always been there when it comes to the hero. But now the male was allowed to be a little bit more relaxed, a little bit more down to earth, you know, and uh, you had cowboys in the line and you had firefighters and you had just these really um, strong male, but strong female characters as well. And they weren't strong in the way that they had been, I would say like in the late 19th and early 20th century where they were just more, um, I guess, sassy. Um, These heroines are stronger in other ways too. Like they're like career women with hopes and dreams for themselves and they own their own sexuality and they're on dating apps and, you know, they're, they're dating multiple guys until they settle down with that one true love that brings them the happy ending. Because of course, in romance, there always must be a happy ending. Um, So they wanted to create love stories that women would recognize. And it was marketed as their sexiest series yet, you know, so you have this intersection of fantasy of course and both the male and female gaze and playfulness and innovative plots and they they were just allowed to have a little fun and have all and and dial down some of the emotional intensity and also get uh, women's family and friends involved and just package all that up into a 60,000 word, uh, a 60,000 word story. So, um, yes, it was formula fiction. It was standardized, but its purpose, we got to look at its purpose. And that's why Harlequin has been so successful, right? They just had this singular focus on escape and entertainment. And their catch line is we've got something for everyone. And yes, while Blaze was incredibly, you know, an incredibly sensual and sexy line, it was always, it always comes packaged with this emotional romance that parallels the, 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 um, the sexy good times. And even Dare had that too. There always just was like a deep emotional connection, even along with the more erotic elements of the story. And Harlequin, I think too, me as a reader, it's almost like a, it's an old friend. It's dependable. The stories are new. They're fresh. The voices are new and fresh, but I always know, you know, I'm going to open the package and get exactly what I came for. So that's what I find like, so, so interesting, so interesting about Blaze. Women 
and and for me, my personally, my research has been in the late 19th, early 20th century. And women then, and as well as now, I think, uh, were socialized to value love relationships. They were socialized to want and to value courtship and marriage and commitment. And um, they were socialized to see the man as a bit of a mystery, you know. But as romance has progressed and as lines like Blaze opened up, you know, they broke they broke those down those expectations a little bit, you know, uh, that marriage and courtship weren't always the end game for every heroine and the man wasn't always such a mystery. Except yeah. in sense. We love our mysterious men. <laughs> we do. <laughs> well, I find that interesting because I was listening to a podcast some months ago and they were talking about how you know, we're living a lot longer now. So there's not like this rush to get married at like 18 anymore, you know, because by the time you're 30, you may be like, I can't stand this person, you know? So now it's like people are waiting until their 30s or 40s to get married, you know, because we're living a lot longer. So to know that like that came out, especially after Sex in the City, which I think was like the first time on television we saw like women unapologetic about the sex and the relationships that they were having it just makes total sense that we would see that reflected in the genre so did you come across anything like how did they market this when it was coming out did you come across anything with that oh yeah like i reading up on this i i just gained just gave me like a newfound respect for harlequin i'm like y'all had this lockdown <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to the marketing people and the sales. Right? So now I am not a marketing person at all. Disclaimer. I study how romance books are are marketed, but I may screw up some of the language. So if there's any business person or marketing. Forgive us. Okay, forgive forgive us. us. (laughs) And feel free to write in and send us a correction, which we will lovingly share with everyone. But um. So according to uh, according to uh, what I what I looked at, so Harlequin in the Blaze era and beyond and before, they used integrated marketing, which is called IMC strategy, and so it combines various marketing techniques. So you've got general advertising, direct response, sales promo, um, internet marketing, and PR. So uh, its goals are just to provide, at least for Harlequin, clarity and consistency, and also just to provide the sense of relationship building with the reader. Um, it, it, I, I read something once that's really interesting, and it says that it's easier to keep the readers you have than to get new ones. So, Ooh. yeah. <laughs> and also the age that most women reported being at when they started reading romance was as 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 a teen and that's true for me too i probably picked up my first romance at around 14 or 15 so if you have these uh, very young women you know 14 15 16 year olds i think the average was at about 16 years old so i was 2 years early but if you have these girls reading romances and continuing to read romance until until they're they're quite old or until you know they're not reading anymore that's a long time to have 
someone reading Harlequin, but a lot of the people I know that read Harlequin have been reading it for that long. And then you have people like you, Brie, who are kind of newer to the genre, but who dive into it absolutely enthusiastically and find something that they can relate to and find something for themselves. So now Harlequin, you see the way they engage with people, I think most recently on social media, on um, Facebook. They have a really thriving Facebook community, Um, but they also do sales promotions. Um, They also do direct marketing. You know, they're folks that still have a direct subscription to Harlequin, whether digital or physical, and get that box every month. And, you know, they have the excitement of opening that box every month and seeing the new titles. And Mills and Boone, which is the British British side of, of Harlequin, um, they started specializing in romantic fiction uh, during the Great Depression. And it was, it was escapist fiction in a time when escapism really was needed. And um, it was published in hardback and it was sold to libraries. So you had folks who maybe necessarily didn't have the 60 cents or whatever a paperback or book might have cost in that time, but they could go to the library and buy it and see the new ones as they were coming out. So um, just that idea of knowing where the consumer is and knowing what resources they have to publish those books and making sure those books are there is really important as well. And I think especially in the early thousands and late nineties, Harlequin did this very well with Walmart, as you mentioned before, and even, even chain bookstores like Borders and Barnes and Nobles. So during the, um, during the 20th century, Harlequin hired a Harvard business school graduate um, Mr. Heisey, and he had 13 years experience at Procter and Gamble. So I don't want to missay the date. I'm thinking probably this early 70s uh, he came in. So he applied a packaged goods marketing, which Procter and Gamble had been doing for years, to publishing, and it was under his his um, it was under his leadership that made Harlequin a name. So distribution was so important. And he was selling the books in the same places as other things. So finding out where women went and making sure these books were right in front of them too. So drugstores, supermarkets, in some cases, department stores, um, you know, as you're pushing your buggy, you see a display of Harlequins and they're not that expensive and you pick one up and you throw it in the cart and you take it home. And this happens, you know, a couple of times every month with. That was me literally a few days ago at yeah. the Walmart. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, hey, new Cynthia Williams, in yes. you go. <laughs> yes, yes. And the Walmart piece is so important because think of how many Walmarts there are in the United States. Yes. Yeah. And how many eyes are on books. And these are the people who may not necessarily have a Harlequin subscription or um, may not want one or may not be able to afford one. But it's when they have when when they're shopping and they see a book and it's four ninety nine or it's on special and it catches their eye. And it's a it's it's a line that they love. Toss it into their shopping cart and take it home, you know. So um just that combination of different types of marketing 
just kind of put Harlequin in all these different places where readers would be. So that, you know, that really got the books, that really got the books out there and it was an effective marketing technique for them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. General ads. Yes. Can you explain that to me? Is that like, is that, what is it when you like read the Harlequin and you'll have the ad that may be there like halfway through the book? Is that an example of that or no? Absolutely. And it was used in, and it was and is used in, in romance book marketing. Um, I think it's golden age was probably when people were doing more of receiving books through the mail. You know, you, not only Harlequins, but like the Avon paperbacks and the, um, the, the romances, the historical romances with Fabio on the cover. I love Fabio. Fabio is a whole vibe. <laughs> And it's funny because I'm not I'm I'm not attracted to men that look like Fabio, but just for the fact that he is Fabio, like you gotta yeah. respect that. You gotta yeah. respect that. Like, so iconic. <laughs> thank you. He's an icon. He is a byline for for you know the woman's romance hero. So hats off to you, Fabio, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> but in in the 70s, there were actually a lot of television ads for Harlequin Harlequin romances. And Are I, you serious? I was like, why can I, I? I went on a YouTube hunt and I found some, but it it's it's so dope. Um, and as recently as 2000, um, there was an ad in Europe with a woman like on a train, and she opens up a Harlequin novel, and she's like transported. I think it was a romance. She opens up the novel and then she's transported to like this luxurious bubble bath, you know, and it's just like gorgeous and soft lens shot and beautiful. And then she closes the book and she's back on the train. So. On the train. <laughs> but you know, that, that's, that's what it is, right? It's that sense of escapism. Um, the, the term armchair travel gets used a lot when we talk about Harlequin Presents, which visit every imaginable every imaginable country you think of and the stories are written very stylistically you know you're not you're not going to deal with anything that's going to get in the way of your enjoyment of the story and yet the places still feel very real and have um elements of life there that people who live there will recognize, even though the place might be slightly prettier than it actually is in real life. So, and, and that's, and that's the skill of the writing and the editorial department. So definitely kudos to them. Um, another way um, these books were advertised and I very vaguely remember this, but in ads in women's magazines. So interesting. Yes. Historically, women's romance has had a very, very close relationship with women's with women's magazines. So you have full page, beautiful, colorful ads, um, ladies home journal and um, other 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 magazines that are popular in North America. So right next to articles about, you know, that deal with domestic domesticity and being more attractive to the opposite sex. And again, this very like aspirational um, sort of fantasy life. You got a Harlequin in there. And then in other books, there are ads in, in the books themselves, there are ads that tell you what's coming. You know, you might be reading um, a Harlequin uh, 
historical romance and then there's like an ad for a heartwarming in the back or you're reading a presents and there's an ad for like a new desire series in the back um or it's like oh here's a sneak peek at so-and-so's new uh romance and then there's an excerpt there uh in the back of the book that that person is reading at that moment so that's another advertising technique to bring new readers in and to kind of what the appetite of um, of those who are already fans of that particular line. So those are all ways in which in which advertising um, advertising advertising works. And I think women advertise them themselves. You know, if you look on Goodreads, on Reddit, on um, other forums, there are readers there who are recommending books to each other. Uh, I got I got in a deep dive on um on Reddit the other day because I discovered like book recommendation subreddits and it's basically people who are saying, well, I need this. I need I need a I need a good romance with just one bed. I want a lot of cuddling. I want like a good hurt comfort scene, you know, and people are just spitting out the recommendations and the answers and you can be there for hours. Cause I was so, <laughs> and you get some really good recommendations that way. So word of mouth is another way that we hear about these books as well. So it sounds like with the, you know, the continuous growth of the internet, the actual like marketing of the books has changed so much. I just feel like I feel like authors now are doing so much marketing themselves. Yeah. And my question is always like, is that because all the stuff that we had once upon a time where it, you may get a, you know, Harlequin advertisement in a magazine? I personally have never seen that, but I don't doubt that once upon a time it existed. And I I, mean, I know that Harlequin themselves even had a magazine I've seen yes. on eBay. Yep. Um, so it but it just sounds like a lot of the marketing now is like all social media presence and all of that. So it's just, it's so interesting to know that as somebody who buys women's magazines, like I would love to see a Harlequin advertisement in there. Absolutely. I mean, same for me, same for me. And it's interesting in watching marketing techniques change with the times. I think that Harlequin definitely is at a transitional place where they're balancing what where they're asking themselves okay where are the readers are they on social media is the fact that you know these books with these beautiful diverse stories and um these gorgeous covers are the fact that they're being shared so widely are they actually translating to sales who are the people that are actually buying them you know are the people on social media buying them or are the people shopping in walmart buying them or is it a combination of the two um should marketing be different for those two groups um should the way they approach the lines be different uh just getting to know the readership and how best to read them is something that i think is going to be a challenge for them going forward but you know they've always rose to the challenge since (laughs) much way longer than I've been around so uh, you know I have every faith that 
they'll be able to navigate this new landscape as well. And then, of course, there's the effects of the pandemic and inflation just on production. That's a conversation that's happening all over publishing, um, supply chain issues and getting enough paper and ink and making sure those books are out when they need to be out just is a challenge for uh, both publishing houses and their marketing teams and also for the authors as well. But personally, I love uh, the new presence of Harlequin on social media and the fact that they're using this new, um, this new mode of expression to market and to get their books out there. With with some with a company like Harlequin mm-hmm. that has such a huge, I would say a huge age range of readers. Yeah. I get, I'm trying to make this make sense. Like I'm I'm thinking of like that big group of like 21 to 34. Yes. Right. And I can totally see those women, especially at back at that time, and what they would want. Yes. And eventually, eventually, like I think, I believe that if a line comes to an end, it does have something to do with this. The numbers just weren't there to justify keeping this going. Potentially, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm not a salesperson. I'm not a marketing person. Yeah. But I, I guess how much of, I guess, is there a time when marketing doesn't work? Mm. I guess that's my question. Or like, does it, you know... It, did the readers outgrow Blaze or did it get to a point where the marketing for like a Blaze or a Dare or a Temptation just didn't work for it? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to speculate like with Blaze specifically because I, while I read Blaze and enjoyed it, I haven't read every single one. Um, I haven't done like a deep textual dive on 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 every single one, but in marketing in general, something that companies or producers of any type of thing, something that often ricochets is when they mess with the formula, right? So, for example, uh, Coca Cola. They've gotten trashed so many. They've gotten trashed every single time they tried to change the original formula, and no one even knows what the original formula is because just I don't think I I firmly believe no one remembers what it tastes like. But just change one little thing, and just like oh, I blah blah blah. And there's always someone lamenting on Twitter or on BuzzFeed about how something doesn't taste the way it did 20 years ago, right? So you've got that unique challenge of giving readers what they love, but still keeping the books feeling fresh and not dated or like that cohesiveness is important. And it's something that came up and up, something that came um, up again and again when I was researching, um, when I was researching romance fiction and, you know, how it grew and how it was marketed. But that sort of um, consistency in story, consistency in feel, consistency in um, heat, heat level, it, it's, it, it needs to be dependable and it needs to be what the readers expect. And the idea is you build a readership based on the fact that they like that one consistent, dependable product. 
I love that. Okay, so one of the conversations that we had recently with author Sarah Mayberry, who wrote mm-hmm. a few Blaze titles, I think 12, she was saying basically the same thing, like, unfortunately, Blaze was too broad. Mm. Whereas like for us presents lovers, you know, you're going to get that fairy tale fantasy, the emotion, there's some steam, you know what you're going to get. But with a line like Blaze, it was too big. But then I think of Dare and I'm like, well, Dare didn't have cowboys and cowboy vampires and all of that. Like it felt, it felt very true to okay this is the reader expectation and this is what you're going to get that's true i question i wonder for dare here in the states it was digital only how mm-hmm. how does marketing and digital only kind of work together or do they do you have to have a stronger marketing if it's digital only you think or no that's a really good question i think with i think with digital only it's making sure it's easily accessible to the reader in a format that they can use like very easily. Um, Like for example, a lot of the indie authors who write higher steam romance or erotica, you know, more in the vein of, of dare uh, they're, they're all on, they're all on Amazon. You know, they're easily accessible one click buy or on KU where you can just, or you can just buy them. And, but on the other hand, distribution is super important as well. Like it makes me think of like all the paranormal romance that I see on display in Barnes and Noble and in other bookstores, all the vampire romance and how it's was so heavily saturated, like within bookstores and easily and easily reachable. It's, you know, it's, it's interesting because Dare was there. But I think almost every dare I ever bought was because of a recommendation in the back of another book. It wasn't necessarily because I was seeing a lot of advertising for dare. Yeah, in any given place. So yeah, that's a tricky one. I'm not. I'm. I, I'm. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Ooh, uh, did she offer? Have... <laughs> did Sarah offer any any enlightenment as to how marketing works for dare? Because I could speak a lot about presents but not necessarily dare since I didn't since I didn't write for them okay talk about marketing for presents because like you said earlier like um and I think you're I think it's so true like Mm -hmm. we've even thought about this with the podcast like we probably have all the category listeners that we're actually gonna get you know like Mm -hmm. (laughs) um Mm -hmm. so um the importance of like keeping like getting your audience and keeping the ones you have but like we're always like screaming from the rooftops of people like you need to read this title. And I think presents is a line that like, if you're new to category, you should give this a try, right? If you decide, okay, too much steam isn't for me. Like you can read certain presents and be like, okay, this is too much. Let me maybe try this line or something like that. So marketing wise, how do you feel? I mean, because presents, people think of presents when they think of Harlequin, which the That's romance true. line's actually older, but presents is like the iconic line. That's so, true. That's what do you how true. do you, how do you think we've nailed it with presents? I think I think their age probably has a lot to do with it. You know, there there are people reading. There were pe- there are people that I know personally who are reading presents in the seventies and eighties that are still reading them now. And wow. Yeah, yeah. They 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 just keep reading them and um. 
just like Fabio, <laughs> who we discussed before, and Coca-Cola, it's iconic and the formula hasn't changed much. But the the issue that might be with, with Dare and with Blaze and with a lot of the newer lines is that, number one, they're newer. They don't have that fan base that spans back generations. Yeah. And then on top of that, if they're quite broad, then you're going to have readers, and I hope this makes sense, you're going to have readers that are going to be enchanted by individual books, but not necessarily the line. Mm. Okay. So yeah. if you pick up a book, if you pick up a book, like if you picked up a book in the Dare line and it read one way, and then you picked up another book in the Dare line and it read completely differently and it had none of the elements that made you love the other Dare book, you may not return to the Dare line. Whereas presents the elements that someone loves, like in a Maisie Yates book, are also going to be present in a Lucy Monroe, are also going to be present in a Jackie Asset, are, all, are, are also going to be present in a Maya Blakes, or also hopefully going to be present in one of my books, right? And you just keep coming back to the line because you know what a presents is going to give you. So, and that's probably where like the power of the subscription box came for like, yeah. once you have that hardcore dedicated reader, I read whatever presents comes out, I'll just subscribe to the box. Exactly. Um, when you're too broad, and it's it's too much going on, I think that's probably where you lose that. Exactly. Uh, that dedication. Okay, exactly. Exactly. Like, okay, so if I were doing it, and again, I'm not a marketer by by any means. We're not marketers here. <laughs> way, shape, or form, right? Like I would try to land on that element that kept people coming back and then just make it like super simple. Like let's have two or three elements that keep people coming back. Like if Blaze was all, haha, pun intended, firefighters, right? <laughs> or, <laughs> or if they were all cowboys or if they were all something and I'm probably oversimplifying it and talking myself like into a corner. But just like if if you picked up five of them and they all had the same exact vibe, the same exact feel, people will want to keep feeling that thing over and over and over again, which is why they would keep buying more of that particular line. Because that historically, I think, is what's worked for um, for Harlequin in the past. And historically, it's those lines with those very strong association, like presents, like uh, love inspired, and like historical, that keep doing very, very well, despite all the changes in publishing. So I wonder whether some of these sexier contemporary lines aren't too uh, sort of all over the place. But then again, I don't want to make decisive statements because I haven't read every single book and every every one of them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I just know with Blaze, I there's like historicals. There's some time travels. Yes. I, I've read the cowboy vampires. You yes. know, it's like yes. this is a lot going on in this line, and it's yes. fun to read. But the more that I sit and think about it, I'm like, if I pick up a medical, I'm picking it up for a very specific thing. You're picking it up because medical. Yeah. Yes. And it's like, well, with Blaze, was its downfall? We didn't really have like a box to kind of stay in. 
And I think I think it is because I mean category romance is called category for a reason, right? Everything's arranged in in different categories. So it's um so for Blaze, like for me, I would never I don't like vampires. I I I don't like vampires. <laughs> I, I do not. I will say that categorically anyway, anytime I don't. I don't like them whether they're historical, whether they're I don't like Dracula, never like Dracula. Right. I don't care if they're sparkling in I the sun. I, I don't <laughs> and Twilight, don't even let me start on Twilight. There are very there are amazing writers of prose that write vampire fiction. But it's not for me. So if I subscribe to Blaze and I open a box and I got two vampire romances in there, I'd be like, mm, no, this this is this, this, this isn't, isn't working for me. You know, again, it's that expectation. So um, if I were to hypothesize, and I don't know, maybe this will turn into another research paper. Who knows? The one thing that I can point out because it's not the quality of the writing. The writers are amazing. Um, it's not the quality of the editing, you know, Harley Quinn editorial is just full of really dedicated and amazing editors. So I'm wondering if there's just too much variety within that one category, or if that one category maybe shouldn't have been broken like into smaller categories. But then again, you have other lines, like, you know, you, 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 you mentioned, um, dare as a specific, as a specific example that also um, that were more specific, but also didn't last as long as some of the other lines. I mean, you know, so, it also, it also could be, it also could be, and this is getting way out there, but it also could be um, national feeling at the moment, cultural trends, um, cultural criticism, you know, all of these have factors on what people are reading as well because i wonder so we we talked with like blaze i think it's safe to say which it came off of you know the the backs of temptation which was Mm -hmm. already there and established and then sex in the city happens and then boom we're getting blaze and then i wonder how much like 50 shades kind of inspired dare but that Mm -hmm. felt like such a quick thing you know like people still talk about 50 shades but it just felt like I don't know, Sex in the City, people like still talk about all the time. And yeah. like Fifty Shades, it just felt like it had its moment. So I wonder of that, did that, um, that desire to like put out something that pushed the limits a little even further than Blaze, yeah. did it just like come and go really quickly? Like, okay, it's time to move on. Yeah, that's, that's in, like uh, Fifty Shades was very flash in the pen. Like you're right. Like it was there and everyone was reading it and then it wasn't. That's, that's, that's really that's a really good that's a really good um observation. But then again, I think of other like erotic high heat authors that are very very popular and have been popular for like several years and you yeah. know they're doing well. So why are they doing well? Like what's the what's the silver bullet? That's the question. <laughs> <laughs> why can't we nail it in the world of category? I, I mean I know Entangled, Entangled has like their brazen line, which I think they still put stuff out. Yes, they do. Um, I mean, Thule, I don't think they have, they don't have like a specific line that's like, this is high heat. It's just, if it's in the story, it's in the story. So yeah, I just, I don't, I don't know. I, I really want to know why sex doesn't sell yeah. in the world of category. <laughs> yeah. You know, 
Hmm. Like it sells in the yeah. in the romance genre. Like it it and erotica certain is certainly is its own is its own genre. It's just difficult within the world of of category. But I, wonder- I feel like in the world of like regular like in in standalone romance world, if mm-hmm. you go to the bookshop, you know, like if you see Italia Hibbert, you're like, okay, I know Italia Ta- goes there. But when you yes. look at her covers, you don't necessarily know. Yes. That yes. this is a book that goes there. Yeah. So I, I feel like across the board, unless you get into the indie romance world, but I feel like nowadays you don't see like the half naked guy on the cover that clearly tells you they're going there in this book. That's true. That's true. And there's a lot of criticism, you know, about that. Like people want to know what to expect. They're like, okay, don't give me some cutesy cartoon cover. And then I open the open it and I'm clutching my pearls, you know, and it's interesting, like, (laughs) because, you know, some people are like advocating for content warnings. There are book blogs that actually will read the stuff and rate it by the heat level. Um, And you don't have that with Harlequin, right? Like, you know what heat level you're getting into when you pick up, when you pick up a category romance with Harlequin, which is, which is really good as well. But I know romance readers that won't read category too. So. And that's, I think, part of how, We've talked a lot about, okay, you have the readers, keep them. How do we get new readers Mm -hmm. to subscribe to the world of category? Mm -hmm. How do we do it? Is that, is the marketing that's done now to try to attract new category readers? Mm -hmm. Okay. How did you get in? Friends. (laughs) Friends. Yeah. Word of mouth. Yeah. No, it's, 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 that's, that's a huge thing. Like word of mouth and, and recommending, and recommending, um, books to people um and you know i i got in through i got in through a relative i got in through my aunt who loved them so you know my story is similar to yours in that way so that's a that's a really interesting question as well i don't know that's a beautiful thing about research though all these questions (laughs) 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 well did you have anything else in your notes that you wanted to share any names you wanted to say out loud or anything else um no not necessarily just so Anne Goris and Pam Dung uh Dungy are two names that I looked at a lot you know when just looking at the history of Harlequin and the history of uh advertising and marketing in Harlequin so they go really in depth in a way that you know we only had a set amount of time so I couldn't I couldn't go into but you know it's just it's just worth it's just worth a think I think and um and looking forward to the future of Harlequin and the future of category romance and where it's headed and what it might turn into but luckily adaptability has always been one of their strengths so I have all the faith in the world that they will (laughs) that they will figure Figure it out. Well, Carlo Quinn and Mills and Boone are going to outlive all of us. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, truly, truly, truly. This will all be our conversation. Will be you know somebody eighty years from now is going to be studying us sitting truly. here talking about it. Exactly. Quinn's still gonna, but I mean, a, a question for you is Blaze. Did you like the wide range of variety within the line or did you find that like kind of disconcerting? Because for me, it wasn't something that I cared for. But for you, uh, how did how did you feel about it? 
I think I am a little bit on the fence. Because, like, while it's fun, mm-hmm. I also think just the, I don't want to say regular, but the, the regular stories, girl meets boy, they're getting it on within the first 100 pages. Like, yes. that, those tend to be the ones that I enjoy the most. But just knowing that it has yes. a variety, I'm like, okay, I have to try to read all of this stuff that totally just doesn't feel like it fits in the box, but yes. is part of it. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think, and, um, it might be worth it to compare Blaze to some of the, now you're making me want to do this to like compare Blaze to some of the other lines that uh, came and went very quickly and see if that same trend continues of like just a very broad swath of, of, um, of, uh, of experience of reader experience, like within that line. Now I'm curious to see. Yeah. I'm going to go back and I mean, look at the dare backlist and see what, what happened there. And I mean, I think of even like Nocturne, I mean, it was paranormal. Yes. So I felt like it had that, but even within that, you have all types of creatures who have all types of jobs and there's all types of locations. And all, I really think Nocturne just the paranormal boom was kind of over. So sadly it went away, but I mean, yeah, when you do look at some of the ones that have come and gone, it's like, maybe they were too broad. Mm-hmm. I'm still a little salty that Kamani's over because it was just contemporary romance, you oh, know, Kamani people of color. Kamani was so good. Iconic covers, beautiful story. I know. I know. Some of the be- the best covers I feel like in romance came mm-hmm. from Kamani. So what are you working on in the presents world or just writing in general? Yes, I am working. I am working on a presents title. It's set in Angola and Portugal. So, and um, you know how to pick a location, ma'am. Okay. (laughs) You know how to pick a location. I'm swooning already. I'm so done with you. You'll be having me in a haze for days. (laughs) So, I am cleaning that up. It's due like in the next couple of days. And my editor, if you're listening to this, I will have it in on Monday. Um, Is your editor Charlotte or no? <laughs> no, it's not Charlotte. It's Laura. Okay. She's amazing. Okay. She's lovely. And um, she, she, she's, she's so patient and so good with the new mom and all the new mom drama. So I appreciate her. So new much. mom living in a new, whole new continent, new country. <laughs> like <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, also I'm wondering this podcast has just made me have an idea like for something that I want to research. Like I want, I, I would love to know if like other products, sometimes the book world puts out a line that's intended to be short term. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if all these lines were even intended to be as long as presents, like maybe they were supposed to be seasonal. So I'd be curious. I wondered to know. that. Yeah, I'm I'd be curious that. to know like what that is. So that's something that I think I want to chase the answer, you know. Because but. okay, some of the books that I've collected mm-hmm. are Harlequin had a gothic line that ran in the eighties, yes. which to me personally, I just feel like the the gothic boom was like fifties and sixties, yes. some of the seventies. Yes. I feel like we were a little late. But my question was like, was it intended for this line to be short? <laughs> but I was told, like, yeah, I don't think that they ever have a line that they intend to be short. Oh, okay, okay. But I don't know how true that is. Because you know, like in in other in other markets, um, 
people bring out products that are only intended to be for a short period of time to like generate excitement and to get people interested in it. And then it goes away. And then all the collectors resell whatever it is for like thousands of dollars, you know, because it was only intended to be for a short period of time. So I wonder if um, I'm not even mad at this theory. Like, I'm not even mad at that. If it's intended, hey, we're going to put out a line with you'll get 500 books and and then that's it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I, I wonder about that, too, because as writers, we're not really privy to a lot of the back conversations and marketing. So, yeah, that was just a thought. So, yeah. Well, you keep fighting the good academic fight, okay? (laughs) And you will have to come back. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I would love to. I would love to talk, please. And um, now you've you've made me want to ask some of the people that be at Harlequin, like, some some questions just about marketing and stuff like that. So I hope they don't roll their eyes and be like, have you been talking to Brie? <laughs> She's so annoying. She's got so many questions. I'm sorry. It's the the historian in me. Okay. <laughs> I like to ask questions. No, 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 no. They love you. And, you know, it is a testimony, I think, to, oh, how do I put it? To how, just to the, mm, to the significance of the role that Harlequin has played in a lot of our lives as romance readers and as consumers of fiction. So any speculation we're doing is compliment. It's just out of love. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well, you touched earlier about like wanting to kind of do some research into black romance. Is there anything specific you're wanting to look into there and like what inspired that? I would love to do an origin story on Black romance. And I've done a little bit of research already, uh, specifically with um, Black religious kind of love stories that Mm -hmm. were published post-Civil War. And, you know, they were tied a lot into respectability politics and, you know, making sure that uh, Black people in that time were seen as very moral and very domestic and, you know, very just proper and presented to society in the quote unquote right way. And then you kind of delve into periodical fiction of the 1950s where it kind of goes in the opposite direction with Tan Magazine and the jet beauty of the week and, you know, just all of this, uh, you know, ownership. That would be the first page that I would flip to. I was like, I want to see who the beauty is this week. (laughs) That was me as well. (laughs) And they were always in the barber shops too. Like you just. (laughs) (laughs) Oh gosh. Yeah. So I'm just like, and then my question is, okay, so how did we get from these very, nice proper Sunday school stories to tan magazine and all these like salacious, very attention grabbing headlines and, and things like that. So I'm, I'm kind of eager to see how the transition happened. So, yeah, I always wonder like what we were reading. Like I think of my grandmother, she was born in 39. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, what were they reading as like teens of color during her day? And I'm sure it was just yeah. like whatever, you know, but everybody talks about like the malt shop books and stuff. And I'm like, but none of them were kids of color. Yeah. So yeah. You know? 
I mean, you know, I think the sad reality, and this is probably like going to be another podcast in and of itself. I think the reality is that a lot of a lot of people weren't necessarily reading books about people of color in that time. They were reading what was available, what was being sold, what was being given in school. And there are some um, 19th century works of fiction and even works of art that are written like uh, where the subjects are white and the setting is like a completely white setting, but it's a black author. So there was, there was a romance, there was a romance book, um, 19th century. The name is escaping me now, but it was a black woman that wrote it, but it, it's actually like a Regency novel, like a white Regency novel. And to read it, it's a very mediocre novel. It wasn't great, but people bought it. Like it was, it was, it sold well at that time, but it was a black woman who wrote it. So just oh my gosh, I'm blanking. Must have there, been like that. Because <laughs> Harlequin had like a an old Regency line, and there was a black woman that wrote mm-hmm. for that for that line mm-hmm. too. Yeah, blanking on it. We've all like hauled the book. There's a parrot on the cover. The heroine's got like beautiful red hair, but yes. yeah, the author yes. was a black woman. So yes. I wonder yes. how much of that actually happened (laughs) that we don't know about (laughs) and you know even now just like going into global stories too uh, not you know not just um black american stories especially with the presents line you've got heroines from all over the world and now they've been now they are being written by um people who are representative of those cultures as well as some of the older books who were written by um by white authors. So it's 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 interesting to see and it's awesome to see that representation uh, going forward as well. Well, I promise I'm going to let you go, but I just had a thought. Sure. So I feel like I tend to think very North American. Mm-hmm. How does all of this pertain to readers all over the world? Like mm. how are how do you as a presents author market or try to connect with readers in like South America or mm-hmm. where you are in the world now, or, you know, thank you. You've been setting your stories in African locations. Yeah. yeah. Readers there, you know, so how does the marketing work globally? You think, is that really like the beauty of social media? It's the beauty of social media, but it's also, I think representative of Harlequin's dedication, at least, you know, especially for the Presents line and getting their books out um, all around the world. So for Presents, uh, they sell translation rights to all sorts of different countries. Like I just got, I have a the, my first book, uh, Redeemed by His New York Cinderella, which is my first pre- Presents book. I saw um, I saw it on a French site and people had reviewed it. And it was just so funny to see like my book being reviewed in French. I had to like French? drop it in Google Translate because my French is trash. And, you know, it's in, they're in Sweden, they're in France, they're in um, Japan. There's manga that, that are, that feature Harlequin titles. So I have to give Harlequin serious kudos for that, like their dedication to getting their books around the world. But then again, the even the English title books, uh, Mills and Boone was read so widely. And, and I say Nigeria because, you know, that's where I'm from. 
in Nigeria by schoolgirls, you know, and they would get the UK version. Of course, Great Britain is closer to closer to Nigeria. But Milton Boone is a household name over there, too. And, you know, young women were eating them up. And I actually had a reader reach out to me via Instagram the other day, and she was talking about uh, the royal baby, he must claim, which features, um, it actually doesn't take place. America is not touched at all. Europe is not touched at all. The book takes place completely in Nigeria and in the Seychelles, you know, two African countries. And she was saying, you know, it meant so much to me to see um, my country represented in a Mills and Boone yeah. book. And it made me really homesick. She's like, you really bought the brought the place to life for me. And I was like, oh, my God, this, this is why I do. <laughs> that's this is that's why, why you do it. <laughs> this is why I do what I do. And it just meant so much. It meant so much. So globalization, I, I think, is key. And also um, it, social media, of course, helps carry the books around the world, too. And also some of these gorgeous covers that are really representative of like diversity and, and um, what the world looks like now. They get a lot of buzz on social media. So readers who maybe never have picked up a Mills and Boone book might pick it up because they see that a heroine um, is set in their home country or they it's a Bollywood love story or it's in Nigeria or it's somewhere else. So that's really exciting. I love that. I love it. I I did um the ancestry genealogy dna like years ago but they're constantly updating it with like the new science and stuff and i got an email recently like (laughs) most of my breakdown is from nigeria and i'm like i'm nigerian (laughs) my mom was like we have to go we're nigerian I love that. I was like reading your book. I was like, okay, so this is this is where I'm from. <laughs> this is me. Yes. This is me. <laughs> no, but it's it's true. It's really beautiful and it's really exciting. And you know, I see it as fiction of the diaspora. And that includes Africa. It includes the Middle East. It includes, you know, North Africa, the MENA region. It includes uh, North America. It includes Canada. It includes um, Latin America, you know, just that spread all over the world. The fact that it's being acknowledged in fiction and um, background and ancestry has become part of character characterization. It's just really beautiful to me. And of course, I still love my Greeks and my Italian billionaires and <laughs> everything that makes presents what it is. <laughs> You're such a presents writer. I'm just, you're such a presents writer. (laughs) I love, I went on a Sharon Kendrick binge the other day and she is, uh, it's just like, you know, when you go to a restaurant and you just know what you want to order and it comes and it's just perfect. That's just like books every single time. They they see (laughs) that spot. They scratch that itch. And there it is. That's, that's the secret to marketing. Just have a book out in your category, in your line that scratches the itch for the reader every single time. There you go. There you go. Well, tell everybody where they can keep up with you online. So I am most active now on Facebook and on Instagram. And you can reach me also um, at my personal email, which is Jade Sola James Author at gmail.com. 
Um, but I do check my messages regularly on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So, Okay. Well, all of that will be listed down below. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. This has been so fun. And you'll have to come back. I'm just Oh, saying. my God, Brie. I always am honored. <laughs> so, I, I just love, love that we can just sit here and be nerdy together. Okay. Yes. yes. I was, you know, today I was like, you know what, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna let myself babble about the things that, you know, I tell my husband and his eyes just glaze over. Like, <laughs> someone who's interested. Yeah. That's what I'm here for. Okay. I am here. I will listen. No glazed eyes. I'm full attention. Okay. Yes. yes. <laughs> but thank you so much for having me. Um, this podcast has just grown and blossomed so much. I've, you know, I've been here from the beginning listening and it's always such a privilege to come on board. Thank you. Well, listeners, make sure you check the show notes. I will have links to all the places where you can keep up with the Jade Sola James, and she will be back. And Aaron and I will chat with you in our next episode. Have a lovely day. Thank you for listening. Bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>